Our scripture reading this morning will be from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. That's page 1056 in your pew Bibles. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us this morning. What a privilege we have to come together and worship God. Brother Ray Aiken is able to be with us this morning, and what a privilege that is. He has not been able to be here for months and months and maybe even more than a year or so. And uh, we'd be amiss if we didn't acknowledge uh, his presence, and so glad that he's able to be here. He's had a lot of struggles with his health, and we're glad that he was able to be here this morning. Fear. It paralyzes us. It stops us from doing what we ought to do. And that's true in our secular life. It's true in our family life. It's true in our spiritual life. It's true in almost every sense. When we think about overcoming our fears, we have to think about being strong and courageous. Colby Coomer was a mountain climber and still is a mountain climber. He's 37 years old now. At 25 years of age, in 1992, he was climbing in the Alaska Range in Mount Four Acre. 17,400 feet, him and two of his friends ascended to the top of this mountain. And on the way down, an avalanche brought them 800 feet off the side of the face of the mountain. He hung there for hours and hours unconscious. When he finally came to, he looked around and saw his friend. He swung over to his friend and his face was masked with ice. He was already dead. Later, he would find his old college roommate, the third one, and he too would be dead. He had two cracked vertebrae in his neck. He had a broken shoulder blade and a fractured ankle. He's dangling from a rope. He was able to pull himself back up onto the mountain and then begin his descent. All of this would take place over four days with these injuries and in the cold and in hunger. He finally would make it to base camp, but there was no one or nothing there. Five more miles he crossed a glacier knowing that if he fell into any of the crevices, there would be no one to rescue him. Now many years have passed. He says, I don't talk about this very much unless there's an important lesson of safety to learn, and then I mention it to others. And as you can see on the screen, this quote, If you do get into trouble... Anything that gets in the way of success has to be eliminated. Emotion, fear, pain. It's the mental things that will impede your survival. I'm not suggesting to you that all of that quote is a perfect parallel to our spiritual life, but in part it is. We must identify the things that stop us from giving ourselves wholly to God, and those things have to be eliminated from our life. And so oftentimes, we read in the Scriptures how fear separated individuals from being what they ought to be. You know, many of the reality shows today aren't very much to watch. 
NBC, their top show, Fear Factor. Many of us have probably seen where individuals are challenged to jump out of helicopters into water or cross a, a, a plank or some kind of uh, surface while two trailer trucks are going down the road or to eat worms or you name it, the grossest, most horrifying things. They're challenged to do this in the effort to win. Now, all I ask you in this illustration is to think of this. The name. Fear factor. I want to ask you this morning, if you've never thought about it before, do you really believe fear is a factor in your life? And if you have never thought about it, you've probably overlooked one of Satan's powerful tools that he uses often. When I first started thinking about this lesson, I first thought to myself, would it be possible to write a lesson just about fear? And then when I got to studying it, I thought, you could do a year-long series over fear. I just mentioned just a few of the hundreds that we could look at in the Scriptures. What did Adam do when he first sinned, Adam and Eve? Well, they faced up to it and they said, we're sorry, God, forgive us. No, he heard the voice of God and he was afraid and he hid himself because he was naked. Twelve spies go out and they spy out the land. They know that God has already delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh. They've seen all that God could do. And so all twelve would come back strong and courageous and say, let us conquer those giants in the name of God. Let's claim our land. No. Ten came back and they were afraid to claim the land that God was giving them. And only two were strong and courageous. And the people wouldn't listen to those two. They would wander around the wilderness for 40 years and finally they would come back to this same point and Moses would no longer be able to be the leader. He would die and Joshua would be the leader. Four times in chapter 1, which is a speech from God to Joshua in Joshua 1, four times God would say, now keep in mind, they've already been to this place once. They were afraid and they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. They're coming back again. What's God going to say? Be strong and courageous. And one time he even followed it up with the words, and do not be afraid. What was the difference in the five talent, the two talent, and the one talent man? Oh, the one talent man tells us why he didn't do anything with his talent. He said, I was afraid. Great man like Peter. When did Peter make mistakes in his life? In my mind, I look at Peter as strong and courageous. And so, if I realize that Peter has to deal with fear, it probably tells me that I too have to deal with fear. You remember when Peter was walking on the water? When did he begin to sink? When he was afraid. You remember the denial of Jesus? Why? Because he was afraid. You remember when he was sitting and eating with the Gentiles and he saw Jews coming and he feared what they would think? And so he sinned and he separated themselves from the Gentiles. Why? He was afraid. The text that was so capably read this morning is a passage where Paul is urging the young man Timothy. And if you'll go back and if you will read First and Second Timothy looking for this, you're going to see that apparently Timothy was timid and afraid. And all through those two books... Paul is trying to get the young man to step up, be strong and courageous. Why? Because fear would stop him from being what God wanted him to be.
There have been many quotes throughout history and throughout the Scriptures. Let's look at just a few as we begin this lesson this morning. FDR said, We have nothing to fear but fear itself. In other words, he was trying to get a nation to realize that the greatest enemy was not flesh and blood. The greatest enemy is the enemy which paralyzes each one of us from doing what we have the potential to do. Jesus would say the same, uh, similar fact. Well, back up one. The old German proverb would say, Fear makes the wolf bigger than he is. Jesus would say in Luke 12 and 4, I say unto you, my friends, Be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Paul would say in 2 Timothy 1 and 7, the text for this morning, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. John would say in 1 John 4 and 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. If you will this morning, be turning to 1 Samuel. And let's look at two individuals from 1 Samuel. Turn along about the 10th or the 11th chapter, and as you're turning there, I'd like for you to think with me this morning, out of the many characters we could have studied in relation to fear, I got to thinking, wouldn't it be neat if we could study two individuals that went through very similar things, except one went through fearful and the other went through with strength and courage and see the difference in the two? What images come to your mind when you think of King Saul and when you think of King David. Most of us would have to admit that if we were to measure our love and appreciation for the two, that we would say, King Saul was okay, I guess, and many of us would have to say, I love studying about King David. There's probably not anyone here if we said, who would you like to grow to be more like them? I don't guess anyone would say, I'd like to be more like King Saul. But you know, if we ask that question, there'd probably be several that would say, I'd love to be more like King David. They went through very similar circumstances. They faced similar, same enemies. But yet, the difference in these two men were remarkable. What was one of the key factors that differentiated these two individuals? Let's look at the way they faced their responsibility. When Saul was being anointed king, if you'll go back in the ninth chapter, you're going to see at the end of verse 1, and by the way, this is around page 252 in your pew Bibles, if you want to be looking in your pew Bibles. Uh, 252. But back in the ninth chapter, you see that he was the son of a mighty man. In other words, he had a relationship of influence with the people already. In other words, he could have went around and told individuals his last name, and they would have said, Oh, yeah, the son of Kish, I know you. I've heard about you. You're a mighty man. Look at verse 2. He had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so he already had the name, he had the prestige, if you will, coming from a family that was known and known to be powerful, known to succeed in what they do. 
But he also had the looks. You know, first impressions are worth something. And so if an individual looked over at Saul and then someone said, that's our new king, the first impression of probably most anyone would have been, wow, I bet he's a great king. It just seemed like everything was set up to be a perfect situation for Saul. But you know, from the very beginning, there was something missing. 1 Samuel, the 10th chapter. If you begin scanning in verse 17, you see that he has been chosen and it's time to gather all the people together and to make the announcement, if you will, of the anointed king. And so the way God does this is telling Samuel to bring all the people together. And if you're noticing 20 and 21 and 22, here's how it plays out. God, uh, through Samuel, calls all the people together. And as the people come together, we have 12 tribes together. And so he says, okay, pull out the tribe of Benjamin. So that tribe is pulled out. And then we see that they're to pull out their family. And the family name in 21 is Matra. And so that family comes forward. And then of that family, the individual family of Kish is to be pulled forward. Now, are you picturing this in your mind? Tribe, Benjamin, step forward. Matra, step forward. Kish, your family, step forward. Oh, this is embarrassing. Oh, me. This is embarrassing. Uh, God, I've just pulled together everybody. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people watching me, God. And I've done this just like you've said. I don't have the anointed here. Look back in 22. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further. Has the man come here yet? You see what they're doing? They're saying, Lord, we don't see him. What have we done wrong? And the Lord answered and said, There he is, hidden among the equipment. Can you imagine? Now, I'm going to give you an illustration, and in this illustration, they'll probably be part of this illustration, you'll think, that's corny as it can be. Friends, I don't think this illustration is probably any more corny than what we just read about a guy that was appointed king, and he was hiding in the equipment room. Now, can you imagine the Titans go on the field, and they get in their huddle. It's the first play of the game. They get in the huddle. And they all look around, Chris Brown. Where is he? Man, I don't know where he is. They go over to Fisher. Hey, where's McNair? we got to have a leader out here. We need a quarterback. Where is he? Oh, no. He hasn't done that again. Hey, somebody go back to the locker room. I bet you anything he's hiding underneath the equipment. Somebody get, we've got thousands of people here looking. This is an embarrassment. We've called together a coliseum of people. We've got opportunity here that we need a leader. And you mean to tell me he's hiding underneath the pads and the extra cleats and the balls in there? Somebody go get him. Now that's really the way to start a kingdom, isn't it? Hiding in the equipment room. I wonder how many of us have had responsibilities that we know we should have stood up to those responsibilities. And we began our justification by saying these words. Well, I, 
I just thought if I did that, well, I was just afraid. How many times have we heard parents needing to do the right thing and the parents say, well, I know that's what I should have done, but I was afraid. What do you think about those anti-drug commercials out now where society is trying to urge our parents and you remember the children, all you hear or see on TV is this yelling and screaming. I can't believe you went in my room. I can't believe you went through my things. You don't love me anymore. I hate you as a parent. And remember, it's all of these remarks like that. And then the summary of the advertisement is, get over it. That's what they tell the parents. Get over it. In other words, sure, you're going to hear it. Sure, it's going to be hard being a parent. But step up and be a parent. How many of us as husbands and wives... We know what we ought to do, but we're just afraid to do it. How many of us at work, we know what we ought to be. We know we're not the Christian example we ought to be. But we're just afraid. What's everybody going to think if I live a Christian life here? How many at school go about, and instead of standing strong for God, it's peer pressure. In other words, I want to make everybody else happy, and I'm afraid to make God happy. Because I'm afraid of what everybody will think if I stand up for God. Wait. We need a king. Are you and I hiding back in the equipment room with Saul? He wasn't much of a success as a king. And we see from day one why he wasn't a success. He didn't have the spiritual courage to stand up and say, it's my responsibility. I don't know how, and I don't know what the outcome will be. But I know this. I'll stand up for my responsibility. We make terrible mistakes when we know what is right and we don't do it and we say, I was afraid. I was afraid what it would cost me financially. I was afraid what it would cost me in reputation. I was afraid what it would cost in influence. I was afraid what it would cost in friends. Friends, when God asks us and gives us responsibility, we can't begin the response by saying, I'm afraid. But yet on the other hand, you remember David was anointed king of the same kingdom. Now isn't this interesting? We can study one and say, well, how did he do? He didn't start out very well. Now, let's be fair to Saul. He had some successes down the road, but his problem was, Fear stopped him from having continual success. In other words, he couldn't stack his successes. He'd have a success and then he'd get afraid of something and he would fail. And then he might do something right, but then he would become afraid and he would fail. But now let's think, when was David appointed king? Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter. In 1 Samuel, the 16th chapter, we read about when Samuel was sent over to anoint David as king. And it too kind of has a, a little bit of humor to it. It's almost a sad type of humor. But we see in verse 1, he was to go down in Bethlehem and he was find a man named Jesse and he was asked to see his sons. Now doesn't that sound simple enough to you? I want to see your sons, okay? So he brings his sons forward. You see there in verse 6, he looks at Eliab. We skip down in verse uh, 8, he looks at Abinadab. We look in verse 9, Shema, Shema, and then... In verse 10, we have this conclusion. Seven of the sons passed before him, and Samuel says to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. 
Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. There he is, keeping the sheep. Samuel says to Jesse, Send and bring him. We will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Isn't it interesting that even his father was overlooking him? It sounds pretty simple when it says, Bring your sons together. And it's kind of like the same situation, except this time there's not a crowd gathered around, but it's like, okay, I anointed the first king, and it came time to appoint him, and I couldn't find him. Lord, where is he? He's in the equipment room. Okay, Lord, I'm trying again. I've done just what you said, and this fellow has brought out his sons, and I'm looking around, and there's not a king again. Find out if he's brought all of his sons. Is this all your sons? Oh. There's one that you, even as a father, have overlooked. What a shame. A father that overlooks his son that's going to be anointed king. Why do you think God chose this individual? I suggest to you that the things that made David a strong, successful king, he already, as a young man, had all of those things as a part of his life. Let's read a chapter later where David talks about this time period in his life, okay? We're going to go forward in time, but he reminisces about this time period in his life. Let's go to the 17th chapter. It's on page 261 of your pew Bible. In 1 Samuel, the 17th chapter, this is what David said about his period of time during this time of his life as he was a shepherd. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. How responsible do you think David is? Son, these are your sheep. They're your responsibility. You need to take care of them. Was he courageous? Or was he a coward? Oh, there's sheep on the hillside. It, it looks like something's in a, into the sheep. Oh, look, David's running. Look, he's hiding over in the equipment room. No. Do you realize that by today's standards, this would make national news? It would. Because just two days ago, I heard the same thing on national news. A man was out in the woods, and a bear attacked him. And he fought the bear off with his hands enough to get free of him, and then he was able to pick up his rifle and shoot in the air, and then as he was trying to run away... Now think about this picture, and think about what we just read in Scripture. He was trying to run away with a gun in his hand from the bear. He slipped and fell, and the gun, the bullet grazed his head. But fortunately, he lived to be able to tell the story. I think running from a bear with a gun in your hand made national news. And here's a young man says, you put me in charge of the sheep? A lion came and put one of my lambs in its mouth. 
And I chased that lion down and I grabbed it by its throat, by its beard. And I struck it with my bare hands and I killed it and I delivered my lamb back to the fold. And Saul, a bear came up and it's the very same story. I can't imagine how it must have looked for that scene to unfold. But I don't doubt the fact that it happened. A young man said, these sheep are my responsibility and God will deliver me. And with the power of God, he took courage and grabbed a lion and a bear by their beard and he slew them and he delivered the lamb to safety. I know this is a question, you already know the answer, but still, we've got to say it. What kind of king do you think that man would make? A man with that kind of courage? A man that's not afraid to look at a responsibility and say, with God on my side, I can do this. Men, how hard is it today to be a faithful husband and a godly father. Most of us would have to say, it's hard. Well, where are the men that are going to be like David that says, it may be as hard as grabbing a lion by the throat, but by the grace of God, I'll give it my all. How hard is it today to be a woman? You know, between the sexes, women are the ones that are pulled in a hundred different directions. Most women today would have to admit that probably being a woman today is as hard as it's been in several hundred years. So much is demanded. So much is expected. Can you be a woman that says, I'll take God's responsibility serious. And I'm not going to be afraid of what God expects of me. Let's look at one final point this morning. And it's right here in the same chapter. Not only was it the responsibilities, but it was also the challenges. Do you realize that not only did they face the same enemy in the sense of nationality, the Philistines, but have you ever stopped to think about it? They, they faced the same exact enemy in the sense of a man. Now, which one rings true to your ear? Saul and Goliath or David and Goliath? Which story have you ever heard? How many little kids have ever come up to you and said, Hey, hey, Mama, Daddy, tell me the story of Saul and Goliath. It's embarrassing. Nobody wants to tell the story of Saul and Goliath. Here's a man that is God's king. Goliath comes out 40 days in a row, morning and night. Eighty times he comes out and says these words. Let's go back in 1 Samuel 17 chapter and read verse 8. He stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for the battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? See, that he's making fun of their leader because their leader is a coward. Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, now here, here is 
the powerful phrase throughout this chapter. If you look for it, you're going to see the word defy throughout the chapter. He says, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. In other words, the root word of defy has to do with surrender. And so what Goliath is saying verbally, he's verbalizing the fact, whether you want to admit it or not, you've already surrendered. I've been out here 40 days. I have defied you every day because I've given you the opportunity to stand up for your God and you won't do it. I stand up for my people, perhaps even His God. In other words, I've already brought you to the point of surrender. What do you think was the effect of all of this on Saul and his men? Read verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You see, that's why this had been going on for 40 days. They were afraid. We don't step up to the challenges that we should step up to in our life when we are afraid. Dismayed literally means to be prostrate. It means to be broken down. And so we would say today, fear paralyzes. Well, that's what dismay is. It's it's breaking us down to the point that we don't act. Let's bring out a word that's become very common, household word in the last three, four, five years. Terrorism. We have a much better understanding of the word terrorism, don't we? It's where people, they either threat or force, try to break down people's lives to be in submission to them. What does fear do? It becomes dismay. It breaks us down so that we literally submit to doing nothing. Saul, what are you going to do? Now, it doesn't say this here, but you almost wonder if you went up to Saul and asked that, he'd probably say, I guess we'll just stay here 40 more days and try to figure something out. Maybe they'll leave. Is that the way we face challenges? Well, I I know I ought to be more evangelistic, but I'm afraid. Is that the way we face challenges? Well, I know there's more that I need to do as a parent, but I'm afraid. I know there's more I need to do as a spy. I know there's more that... How do we face challenges? Well, you know the rest of this story. Notice as David comes in in 24, 25, and 26. At the end of 26, still here in 1 Samuel 17... At the end of 26, he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, that is what David could not stand. You're making God an embarrassment. You've brought the army of God to the point of being defied? He mentioned it again back in 25. And finally, his brothers are stirred up against him and they want to just send him home. Notice 29, David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? And if you don't get anything else this morning as it relates to fear, please get this point. David's looking at all these men that are grown and supposed to be courageous and they're not doing anything. And instead of him saying, scaredy cats, scaredy cats, he gets to the root of the matter. Is there not a cause? Why would anybody stand up against a giant unless they believed in the cause more than they even did their life itself? You see, that's when we do courageous things. When the cause of God is more important than my life, I'll do courageous things. You guys that are still in school, please get this. 
When Christianity is more important to me than my reputation, I'll do courageous things. Those of us that are the workplace each day, when Christianity, serving Jesus, is more important than what my peers think about me, I'll do courageous things. When doing God's will is more important than finances, when it's more important than emotions, we'll do courageous things. But oftentimes, instead of seeing the cause of Christianity, we just see the giant. And we stand over here with Saul and his men, and we're broken down, dismayed, and afraid. And we say, I'm just so afraid if I do something. Let's all stand on the side of the cause. Where David says, the power of God, He will deliver you into my hands. Think of the difference in Saul and David. And it was simply because he believed in a cause so much that he wasn't afraid. This morning, how much do we believe in the cause? The cause that hopefully we'll spend an eternity with that God. And with all the other people that believed in the cause that much. But now think of this. There can be one factor that separates us and that's fear. This morning, let's not be afraid. I know that's easy to say. But in that we're saying, let's build our faith in God to such a point that we can at least overcome our fears because we trust in God. If you've never been baptized into Christ for remission of sins, there may be fears that are holding you back. It may be the fear of repenting. It may be the fear of being baptized. But whatever it is, this morning, will you cast those fears aside? Be strong and courageous for God. Maybe you've been baptized into Christ and somewhere along the way you've separated from what you ought to be and, and you've put off coming back. And maybe you could have a list of fears. Well, I haven't come back because I'm afraid of. Wouldn't this be a good time to put those fears aside and say... I don't know where this is going to take me in life. I don't know how this is going to affect my family. I don't know how this is going to affect my workplace. But you know what? It's time for me to take responsibility and step up to the challenge. I'm not afraid because I'm with God. Now, if we're on our own, we ought to be afraid. But with God on our side, we don't have to be afraid. He doesn't give us that spirit. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.